Welcome to Do Better Research, a learning-focused podcast about research methods. My name is Dr. Suzanne Albury, and I'll be guiding you through research methods to become a better researcher, both for academic study and professional practice. This is the first of a three-part episode where I speak to Dr. Kaya Frank, whose PhD looked at literary werewolves as eco-gothic monsters. Throughout these three episodes, we will cover a range of topics, particularly around what it's like to do a PhD. In this first episode, we delve deep into the research process, the need for space to think, and pushing yourself to the limit of your abilities. The second episode in this series covers genre and literature, the supervisory relationship, and how to develop a research methodology from scratch using the intersectionality of research areas. In the final episode, we cover the benefits of networks and conferences, vulnerability as researchers, and the role of the researcher in our research. And finally, the reality of the fantastical. I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation on all aspects of the research process, doing a PhD, and being a researcher. So Kaya, thank you so much for joining me on the Do Better Research podcast. I'm really grateful that you agreed to be a guest on the podcast. Would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners? So I'm Dr Kaya Frank. And I am currently a visiting lecturer in English literature and creative writing at the University of Hertfordshire. Um, More interestingly, in terms of my research, though, my background is broadly speaking in Gothic literature, which is what I tell people when I want to make a good first impression. But (laughs) when I want to really get them talking, um, my PhD was in werewolves and literature, looking at them from an eco-Gothic point of view. I did that under Dr. Sam George at the University of Hertfordshire. Um, And then my BM master's dissertations were on vampires. And my master's was actually on Twilight, the sparkly vampires that everyone loves to hate. And it was... (laughs) essentially a defence of my love for Edward Cullen. <laughs> oh, I love that. I'm pleased I'm pleased that there was some passion in there as well. And you are clearly one of the Twilight fans, so we, I won't kind of say anything to the, the quality or nature of the movies. Um, and I'm sure many listeners will happily have their own opinions and start talking about True Blood and other such vampire gothic fantasy. I don't think it counts as science fiction, does it? Some of it does overlap. If you're looking like uh, Octavia Butler's work on vampires like Fledgling, it definitely moves into at least speculative fiction, if not full-blown sci-fi. But all these genres bleed into each other in really interesting ways that keep, that keep those monsters evolving and innovative and exciting. Okay, well, that is certainly something that we're going to get back, come back to, I think, in a, a probably quite a nerdy way, to be honest. So one of the things that I ask all of my guests on the podcast is, um, what is it you like about doing research? Why do you do research? What is it that drives you to continue doing it? I'd say, and this is going to be quite a sci-fi answer, I like the time slippage. So when you're really researching, when you're really researching, there is something so weird about how it actually affects, and I'm talking not specifically what you're thinking about, but if you're sat and you're reading things and you're searching for things and you're making notes, the way that time moves completely changes and it clearly affects your brain processing. And I find that such a bizarre sensation where 
we're so used to being really embodied creatures and you're thinking about, oh, I'm, I'm breathing. Well, I don't think that much about breathing, but I need to go to the toilet. I'm eating food. I'm getting thirsty. I'm getting tired. But when you're really, really researching, it's almost a Zen-like state where time stops. And I find it an like it doesn't happen all the time and it happens less and less as I get more and more time pressed. But certainly during my master's and my thesis, there were meditative moments where I was like, it's an out-of-body experience. And I felt like my brain uh, was like a cosmos outside of my head. And I, I thought that that was just an amazing experience. I don't do hallucinogens, so it's the closest I'm going to get. <laughs> I like that. I mean, there is something really kind of, something that can really transcend normal space-time, isn't there? When, you, when you're doing a piece of work that you're really enjoying, passionate about, so you found something that's really interesting, you're starting to kind of connect those dots and you suddenly move into this completely other world of whatever it is you're doing your research on. So when I was doing my, my PhD, it was on like ancient Maya culture and how relationships and interactions. And when you start seeing patterns that maybe other people hadn't seen or connecting patterns that are, someone else is explaining, it's, it feels, yeah, really zen-like, doesn't it? And certainly it's something that I've noticed, like it can work two ways. You can either be completely in the moment and you look up and three hours have gone past and you feel like you hardly did anything, but you were just beavering away, finding things. And the flip side is, is uh, my partner will say that he can really tell when I'm in the moment because he's like, you go completely still. And he's like, I can talk to you and you're not answering and you're not in the room. And then you'll like flash out of it and go, oh my God, I've just had a thought. And he said, it's so weird. Or if he shows me things that I'm interested in that are a bit gothic and he's like, oh, do you like this music video? Or do you like this? Or do you like that? And he's like, I always know when you like it because you go all still and then you'll immediately start saying, oh, well, I think that connects to that and that's to do with that. And that reminds me of this I was researching. and I want to write about this um, or research it. Um, and that can just be like even a few, a minute or two, but in my head, it feels like so much has happened in those few minutes. I think that's a really good point and something um, we don't really talk about a lot in, in research is the ability to, I don't know, step away and sort of um, just let your brain kind of percolate in the background. And then when you do see something or where you suddenly have this idea that connects to things, you hadn't even realised you were really thinking about it, well, do you? you? You suddenly kind of go, oh, I've just, I've just figured out how that works or, oh, I've just figuring out how I'm going to write that section or how that's going to come together. We don't really give ourselves enough downtime to do that a lot of the time. So it's interesting because this is something that I've been really reflecting on in the past couple of years. And it's in part because um, at the end of the first lockdown, I had twins. So my, it completely changes your brain. It does it because of actual practical hormonal things and it also does it because of sleep deprivation <laughs> and mainly sleep deprivation um and also in my case um i um i lost loads and loads of weight i ended up breastfeeding them i was lucky enough to be able to do that and i got the support i lost loads and loads of weight so i actually think that my body was eating muscle mass whilst not getting enough sleep whilst constantly just doing you're just doing like i've got to do this what we're doing next what we're doing next when i then sat down to actually be able to write something that facility had completely gone. 
And particularly it had gone because suddenly I was writing under pressure. So you've got an hour and a half nap time. You have to write something. And it is the worst way to write. As an undergraduate, I could only write when I had the fear, which was like when the deadline was looming. Then as a master's and then as writing my thesis, my process of research and writing became far more about breathing space, walking away, coming back to it, um, even making sure, you know, making sure that like I was getting enough sleep and making sure that I was going for walks and that I was getting exercise and that I was looking after myself. Uh, and that was really important. And, and that like that downtime, whether it's going to see friends was when I made my connections. And I happened to be talking about a similar thing. I had an interview with David Pace, who does Decoding the Discipline. Um, and it's part of I'm part of a scholarship of teaching and learning group and he was interviewing me about my writing process and every time he asked me a question well what do you do next I'm like have a bar of chocolate make a cup of tea go for a walk listen to a podcast and I was like all I do is not write (laughs) I was like all my best writing has actually happened in very intense like I'll have a day of writing maybe three or four hours of that I was writing but there was a good eight hours where I felt like I was working but four of those hours was just wandering around my kitchen or eating another biscuit or like being like oh I'm just gonna clean the toilet and what I didn't realize was that was integral Mm. and it's funny because my mum would say that about me my mum was like yeah I've watched you do work for so long and she's like a lot of your process is procrastination and you beat yourself up about it like I'm not doing enough work I'm not doing enough work we all do it and she said but what will happen is I'll then watch you sit down and suddenly it's there. It just needed some space. Um, and it's something I get less and less time to be able to do, which is a bit sad. Um, but yeah, pushing prams and walking around is kind of the equivalent of my thinking space at the moment. I think that's a really good point. And I love the idea of like this. This, it, it, I don't want to kind of make everything about being productive, but there is such a thing as productive procrastination. It's just giving your brain something else to focus on while the cogs in the back are doing good work. Yeah. And there's, there's, I did, I ran a few half marathons and I actually ended up running one whilst I was doing my um, thesis. And actually, I, you know, I'm able-bodied. It was something again, that was available to me. Um, I am not a good runner. I am not a good runner. I am built for comfort, not for speed. <laughs> and yeah, I was very, 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 very slow. And I'd put on really long Radio 4 dramas. That was, this is before podcasts, so this is a while back. And I'd be like, oh, this is like, let's listen to a radio. Oh, isn't it nice? It's about, it's a Jane Austen adaptation. I love this. And I'd be running along the Thames. Um, and one of the things was when I was actually fully in training, you notice that they say things like, oh, you have to give yourself rest days and you have to bulk up on the carbs and you actually taper down how much you're running and you never quite run the full amount if you're mm-hmm. not like doing it professionally, which I wasn't. And they're saying all this stuff. And when I actually applied it to writing and research, it made so much sense. We tend to go right up to the limit with our research and our research project. We push it all the way until we're sort of like building up and up and up and up and up. And we don't give ourselves any break days. Mm. And because of the fact that your brain is always on, it's a lot harder to force yourself to stop thinking and stop worrying and stop researching than it is to stop running. And you just stop running. But we, yeah, I definitely, it changed a lot of the way that I approach my research. And I think for the better um that you have to be stubborn in academia to tell people i'm taking a break 
I'm sorry, I can't do this right now. Yeah, the importance of saying no is really is, is huge, isn't it? And um, yeah, I love I love the analogy using you using there about the idea of approaching your running, approaching your writing, approaching your research like your training. And like, I, I've run a couple of half marathons. I also suck. I didn't enjoy it at all. It's it was a one foot in front of the other, and I don't think I'll do it again. But I, I like the analogy there. I think that's a really important one. So thinking about all the research that you have done, what has been your favourite research project? That's really, really hard. I would say I'm torn between two. And they're the two big ones. Okay. They're either my master's dissertation or they're my actual thesis. And in both cases, the reason... So my master's dissertation, I said, was on Twilight. But my undergraduate dissertation being about vampires, but it was very Freudian and very much like, hey, I've just discovered that fangs are basically penises. And I've really just worked out that I can just talk about sex and I'm in my early 20s and that's great. That's all I really want to do anyway. I'm at university. (laughs) This is great. So I was at that point of like finding, I think quite a lot of English literature students certainly go through that phase where they find out about psychoanalysis and they're like, what? You mean the thing I've been thinking about? And I'm again, assuming that I know that there are asexual people and stuff, but certainly for me as a heterosexual and non-asexual person, I was like, the thing I'm mainly thinking about is actually I can use it as a methodology. That's amazing. But when I then wrote my um, my master's dissertation, I'd moved on a little bit. I was tired. Uh, I didn't have money to go out. And I basically was living like a monk during my master's. Um, so, And I was in a very long-term relationship. So I was like, yeah, this isn't really a driving factor. So when I wanted to do my dissertation, um, when I wanted to do my dissertation, I really wanted to, I wanted to deal with the fact that there were so many Twilight haters. And I'd read the first novel in my final year of university, fallen in love with Edward Cullen, but also gone like, this is such a good vampire novel. Like the way it's dealing with deferred gratification and... The thirst was, he was thirstier than any vampire. I Like, just no self-control, but continuous self-control. The tension between the two, like, the repression was just so engaging. And so I wanted to basically reclaim it. And the other thing was, when I was looking at it, everything I'd read about it had been whether it's feminist or anti-feminist. And I was reading it and going, this is just like an early gothic novel like this is just like female really old-fashioned female gothic literature and then I was reading about Stephanie Mayer and I saw what her education had been and it was Brigham Young and it was like a very traditional English literature course and she put these little quotations in from these like traditional female like texts and novels including a few gothic novels and I was like yeah this is what we should be looking at it uh, you know this is how we should be looking at it And when I first approached someone to be my supervisor, they were very dismissive. Um, And I was really lucky because Professor Angela Wright, who's based at the University of Hertfordshire, where I was, had overseen my BA dissertation. So I contacted her and she was like, yeah, sure. She was like, one, you just you get things done on time. So that's great from a supervisory point of view. And two, yeah, I think there's a really, you know, you're making a good point here. So doing that was really good because it was slightly fueled, slightly fueled 
by me trying to stick it to the man, so to speak. Um, and I think that sometimes it's good to have an external force. Like I just want to make people slightly angry and annoy people, which is a lot of what my research comes from. <laughs> um, I just, I want, I want my aunts and uncles who think I don't do a proper degree to really think I don't do a proper degree. Um, so yeah, so the, I really enjoyed writing that because there was so little secondary criticism, academic secondary criticism on Twilight. I had to go in and make my own framework and find my own methodology and my own approach. And similarly, when I did my thesis, I went in thinking, well, there'll be loads about werewolf literature. And there really wasn't. And one of the other things is when I looked, the fundamental aspect of my thesis and approach and methodology is, well, where's the wolf? We go on and on about werewolves. We go on about how they represent the beast within. We talk about what they mean in terms of how we can analyze human behavior, particularly from a male-centered point of view. But what does it mean if we say that it is monstrous to become a wolf? What does that tell us about our relationship with wolves? And that was the driving factor. And at the end of my first semester, I had this, I did loads of reading and I showed up and I had like a table of werewolves with where, you know, I'd read so much and I'd fitted it in. I'd used the model of Christopher Frayling's table of vampires. And I was like, I'm actually scared because I have, I feel like I have nothing to respond to. Um, and I'm just out in the open ocean and I used what I'd experienced doing my master's to then build on that and create my own framework and my own sort of methodology and approach. Uh, but both times it was nerve wracking, but I think it produced for me my really original work. Oh, I love that. And yeah, the fact that you you are debt, you're an English literature researcher really comes through as well. And I remember because I've, I've done a little a little bit of research around um, H.P. Lovecraft and the aesthetics of H.P. Lovecraft because um, my partner is a, an ex-philosopher. He's now a computer scientist. There's a kind of weird career trajectory for you. Um, but he's really interested in the philosophy behind like, H.P. Lovecraft. I'm really interested in aesthetics. So we write a paper about um, aesthetics and H.P. Lovecraft and collectible card games and Magic the Gathering and Hearthstone. And this idea of what's around the corner is not scary it's the process of going around like moving around the corner it's the process of going into the darkness the darkness itself is not scary but it's the going from the knowing to the unknowing and the unknowable and i think that's the kind of really embodies basically how we live our lives as academics it's like it's scary because we don't know what we don't know yet and pushing through the learning process is a really difficult one and it's at what point do we hit the the corner that we know we need to turn and what might be beyond and I think I'm so I, I love what you've been researching uh, <laughs> that is awesome and I have many questions because I've just been at a conference and like the idea of weird fiction and Lovecraft comes up time and time again mm. and the thing about Lovecraft is the reason why he's good is his very failings as a human being, and they are many. Oh, God. Make him good because he's so full of fear for everyone and everything and everything that is different and other that it suffuses his writing. Mm. And it's why I don't think I could write horror well 
Because generally, even though I study really weird things and I listen to serial killer podcasts, my fundamental position is that people are, broadly speaking, good and kind. And at worst, they'll be dismissive, which is upsetting, but not end of the world. And I just think that if I wrote horror where it's like, and my philosophy is most people are nice. And <laughs> things will be okay. It'll just be bad horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that would really work.